My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back. It's great to have you here for another episode. My guest this week on the show is Shazad Ismaili, who's recorded with a real uh, murderer's row of talents. He's recently been on records by Moses Sumney and Sam Amadon. And uh, if you look back in his credits list, you'll see people's names like Martha Wainwright, Bonnie Prince Billy, Yoko Ono, uh, Beth Orton, many, many more. Along with his buddies Shay Smith and Mark Rabot, he's a member of the punk jazz outfit Ceramic Dog. And last year, he released a great record called Visitations with Leo Abrahams on his own Figure Eight Records label. Hit pause if you need to, um, but go check out the album cover. Very incredible cow and dog hanging out together situation. I highly recommend it. I had a great talk with Shazad about his process, uh, his time in the desert, and what it takes to work with so many diverse people. I hope you enjoy this one. I'm recording this once again on a Saturday, and it seems like we've got the last cold front of the winter sweeping in here in the desert before spring kicks up. Please keep all the great comments, emails, and suggestions coming. I really love hearing what you think about transmissions. You can find my contact info on Aquarium Drunkard, and I'm on social media. Spend too much time on Twitter, just like so many of us do. Leaving a rating or review helps the show out. If you want to get involved on a deeper level, you can check us out on Patreon. All right, well, uh, let's head into my talk with Shazad. Thanks so much for listening. I'll speak with you more on the other side. Down in Danville, Pennsylvania, all the children are insane. First, they drove me from the schoolyard, then they beat me. Shazad, it's a real joy to have you here on Transmissions. I appreciate you taking the time and joining. Thank you, thank you. And if um, if there's ever inappropriate auxiliary sounds coming from eating or otherwise, you just or a humidifier, just let me know if I should turn anything off. You got it. Yeah, no, no worries, no worries. I just well, did a recording recently. Mike Watt asked me to be on his show. Do you know you know Mike Watt? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Watt from uh, Pedro show. Totally. And, and Mike Watt was, um, as we all probably know, esteemed bass player from the Minutemen, Firehose, and uh, Iggy Pop, and the Stooges, all that stuff. So he asked me, as part of being on a show, to send him 11 songs that I was a part of. And I was stressing really hard. I was looking through stuff. It was very difficult. And then I got up to 10. And then for the 11th one, I decided I was going to record something for him just really quick. 
because he was it was like being interviewed at 2 p.m i still didn't have the stuff to send him by like 9 a.m that day so i had 20 minutes and um i recorded a cover of pj harvey's song horses from stories of the city stories of the sea i love that song me too man that's one of my absolute favorites just the mood of it and so at one point i'm playing a, i'm playing the nylon string guitar and then I'm doing the vocals as an overdub. And at one point, there's a moment where it's just instrumental. And I'm singing, and then I'm waiting for the vocals to come back in, for me to come back in. And then there was like a, a plastic bag that we were using to cover microphones for safety. And I picked it up and just started crinkling the crap out of it. And then I did on all the other vocal takes. So the instrumental is just like a ton of insane crinkling sound. I just thought of that just because I was telling you about extemporaneous sounds and stuff. <laughs> Was was that something that you recorded there in in your studio, the the figure eight studio? Yeah, totally. So I was downstairs. These days during COVID, I'm on a very weird sleep schedule. Post becoming a dad, as Michael would tell you or anyone else, you tend to wake up earlier because you go through these years of the kid waking up at six regularly or seven or whatever. So after becoming a dad, I I woke up. I started to wake up early, but then after COVID when all gigs disappeared and there was no 8 p.m. onward activity, no gigs, nothing, I started to go to bed around 7 or 8 every night and then wake up at anywhere between 3.30 and 5 in the morning every day. So this was one of those mornings where I woke up at around 4 or something and I went down to the studio and took hours trying to find 11 tracks, found 10, and then recorded this one little thing. Yeah. <clears throat> what, what is somebody who you've collaborated with? Um, never. Wait, no. You, have you got you guys have never even been on the same record? No. Um, if that happened, that was totally without me knowing it. Like probably some compilation where he was on one track, I was on another track. But um, the and closest, it, yeah. No, I just realized. Yeah, I, I guess I just made the assumption that you guys had collaborated. But there yeah. you go. I mean. No, I was just an incredibly huge fan growing up as a young kid, like in college. Someone gave me some Minutemen records, and then I got to see Firehose live. And, um, God, it's, it's heavy. There's so much to admire about him. But one of the things that hits me the hardest as I get older is how how much core strength he has as a human being separate from his bass playing like the idea that someone pretty much day after day is the same person mm -hmm. gives the same amount of forward momentum to everyone around him and is just up for tussling with life as, in whatever whatever fashion it comes towards you yeah yeah and that's like that's so admirable about him well certainly certainly well, your list of collaborators, though, is extensive, clearly. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. you've got Laurie Anderson, Lou Reed, Will Oldham, yeah. John Zorn, Tom Waits, J Jolie Holland, all these people who I love their records so, so much. You already touched on it a tiny bit, but what has the year been like? You know, 2020, it's now 2021. Um, what has the year been like for you in terms of collaboration? Have you still been kind of keeping up with folks and, and recording stuff at your studio? Or, you know, how, how did the sort of year look for you on an artistic front? 
I'll tell you a couple things. So number one, really quick sidebar, I want to just correct the Tom Waits thing because it has floated around in the world. Here's the actual level of Tom Waits interaction I had. Okay. Never got never got to play with him, but um, I think the reason this accidentally got into some bio somewhere is I told someone this story, the following story, which is true. Um, I'm sitting at dinner with a friend in New York at this, uh, I think now defunct, home cooking Japanese restaurant called Soy. It was one block over from Tonic. Tonic was a really beautiful and important venue in New York, say 2000 to 2007, something like that, roughly. And mm -hmm. Tonic was on Norfolk, and this was on Suffolk and, and Essex, about a block over. And I was eating, and um, my phone rings. And it was like, hello? And I said, hello? And it's like, hello, this is Tom. Uh, Tom Waits. I'm a blues musician, but I use a double bass. <laughs> and then I was like, um, okay. And yes. Oh, oh yeah. Um, yeah. And then it went, what, what it turned into that call was him saying that Mark Rabot had recommended me to go on tour them as a guitar player because they needed someone for a tour and someone dropped out last minute. I am, I immediately leave the restaurant, apologize to whoever I was eating with, run to the car, put Tom Waits on speakerphone and start recording the phone call because I was just so excited. And some of the highlights were him saying, listen, you don't have to worry about your comfort. We're going to have a TV in the bus. There's going to be a TV. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and it just went on. So anyway, uh, Waits, Waits was, was uh, a request to do a tour. And then in the end, the original guitar player that was going to do the tour called back and said, hey, I can do it. And then that was the end of that. But okay, now this year collaboration wise. So a lot of a lot of the wild beauty of my life has often come from totally random in-person encounters that snowball one into another circumstantially because one thing leads somewhere else in a way that you weren't expecting. So all of my collaborations happen due to being in, in and out in the world. For yeah. example, there was a moment when I was at a coffee shop in Reykjavik, Iceland, and there's a person, two people in front of me. And that person turns around and says, hey, um, wait a minute, you play bass, right? Turns out that person was Damien Rice, this beautiful Irish songwriter. And he was in Iceland to make a record. And his engineer was uh, was Mio, who is Valgir Sigurdsson's brother that runs Bedroom Community and runs Greenhouse Studios in Iceland, where Ben Frost recorded, wh who I recorded with there, and Sam Adam yeah. and other people. So Damien was working with Valgir's younger brother. Uh, Mio said, if you want bass and drums on this track, there's one person you should call and he's in town, I think. His name is Shazad. And so then Damien and I spoke at the coffee shop. Next thing I know, I'm playing drums on a track Damien's doing for a Selma Hayek um, short film vignettes of Khalil Gibran's The Poet. And then Damien and I go onwards to become very close friends, play on some records, play shows, just really deeply be in each other's lives. So what I mean to say is, sadly, in the COVID year, collaborations are minimal to zero because they never came long distance for me. I was, I still have yet to solve 
this piece of the puzzle that friends have solved through film composing, TV scoring, or telephone style, hey, I want you to play bass on my record, I'll send you the wave files, you send them back to me. There are friends that are in that milieu, but I never was. I always really like to be in the room and very gently read the energy of what's happening, suggest a part, see the response that's happening, that's coalescing, change the part, and we naturally come to something. Yeah. Um, and so in front of me this year were a couple of collaborations, not much. And they usually came from people that I knew heavily already. So for example, I worked a lot with Sam Amidon. Sam is married to Beth Orton, who is this wonderful British singer. And so Beth and I know each other through Sam for all this time. But then Beth called and said, hey, you know, I have some tracks and I don't know exactly where I want to go with them. And what do you think about working on them a little bit together? And then I ended up playing some bass and drums and percussion and some synths and guitars on some tracks that will be on her next record. Hmm. That was a great moment. But really the distance stuff this year was few and far between what's in front of me, if I want to do it, is to pick up the phone and call most anybody we could think of and say, I'd like to make something with you. Now, that's doable. I could then go downstairs and make some work and send it to them and have things go back and forth and then I mix it later. But what's challenging for me is I haven't figured out metaphysically, philosophically, how to make that long distance vibe feel vibrant. Yeah, yeah. I, can't, I haven't gotten it to move for myself. And you, I have to find that solution. You, I mean, you're, you're, you're sort of like, it seems like you've got a very communal view of music, that it is very much like a, like an in-person, uh, uh, interpersonal sort of uh, connection that really fuels some of the music. Um, is that how you, did you, did you sort of basically learn to play music uh, with other people? Was that sort of how things started? I got lucky. Um, I very badly wanted to be a musician ever since I was a tiny kid. Um, my parents um, were not super into it. So there wasn't a kind of um, start from a young age vibe. I had to find a different path towards music. I'm primarily self-taught. And I started in earnest around 19 or 20 years old. And I began very, very early days by taking my little electric bass, short scale bass, and wearing it everywhere. And we're talking about like physics class, lunch, dinner, um, movies, always, always you're, just sitting there. You're, 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 you've got your bass with you? A straight up, no joke, no exaggeration. It's on me, unplugged, and I'm playing all the time. <laughs> uh, then, and, and later on, as an, as, a, as an older person living in New York, I started to do that with a guitar and I would drive and play guitar constantly in New York, which was so fun. What you do is like one leg, your right leg is on the accelerator pedal. The okay. left leg is like yoga pose style, gripping the steering wheel between the big toe and the next toe. And so you're driving with both your feet and then just shredding the guitar. Sometimes there's a metronome plugged into the car stereo. Now, um, the thank you for is, the thank you for the how to. I'm still uh, going to I'm going to insist that listeners don't try that at home. But <laughs> but yeah, continue. <laughs> I can send in some video for anyone want, that wants to DM either one of us. So um, so I got lucky in that after my college years, 
everything about playing music was having the instrument on when I'm at a gig or rehearsal or recording. Mm-hmm. And when I lived in, when I moved to New York and started playing in earnest there, every day of the week, I had three to seven things to go to that day. So I'd wake up in the morning, I'd have a dance class that I had to play some drums at, then I had a rehearsal, then I had a maybe like some improvising with a friend for fun, and then I had between one and three gigs a night in different venues, different kinds of music. And so I was so happy that the way I got better playing my instrument was always on stage in some fashion. Um, and that meant that the choices I made, the way to play a bass line was always in relationship to what was happening around me. It wasn't just in relationship to the metronome or in relationship to a static song that you're listening to off a record trying to learn something. Because unfortunately, while that is definitely the a good way to go, the record is not moving with you. It's a static object. And so therefore, you don't get the, you don't get the energetic understanding of relating. Um, one of my favorite bits of information to pass on when this com- conversation or this topic comes up is that a friend from college studied Balinese music, um, Javanese and Balinese, Indonesian gamelan. And as he went over there and studied at very high level, like Fulbright, there every year doing research papers, he told me musicians in the gamelan don't have a conceptual understanding of why you would play your instrument alone. Sure. Like it, it doesn't, it's, it's, um, it's like that kind of story they tell about native peoples. Like it's pretty terrible in terms of, um, racism, but the, but basically if you take anybody that's never seen an elevator before and they look at the elevator and the doors open, some people go in, the doors close, the doors open, different people come out, like conceptually it doesn't make sense. Sure. until you take the elevator ride. So a gamelan player would, doesn't understand why, even if their part is do dee dee do da why you would put on a metronome and play do dee dee do da when it's supposed to be do da da dee do da 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 do da and it's in relationship to other things. And right. so the only way, if you don't know how to play your part well, you would immediately pick up the phone, call the other person and say, can we meet up tomorrow at 7 o'clock? I need to like work on this part. And I got very lucky that I learned to play a Western instrument in that same way of just very socially all the time. What were the, the first kind of bands that you played in? First, first band, I'm in college. I'm in Simon's Rock of Bard College in Western Massachusetts. And um, my dear friend, who is two years older than me, um, Zig, he was called Zig at the time. Now he's called Rhett Peppy. And we both ended up living in Arizona for a really long, good stretch of our lives together. Um, he played guitar and wanted to start a band. And um, his guitar playing was totally visual art style, like no chords, no notes, just like, like just noise guitar. And yeah. so that left me as the bass player in a trio setting with the drummer with all the responsibility of trying to have chords and harmonic and melodic sort of framework for his lyrics, his noise guitar, and then the drums. And that was the first kind of band experience I had. And I think it set the tone for me to see the bass as a wider, more piano-like object than just a bass line space. 
you you obviously you play the bass a lot, but you play all sorts of stuff. You know, I you do, play drums. Yeah. You play good. You put out a great guitar record uh, last year with Leo Abra- uh, oh, Abraham's yeah, yeah. Vi- Visitations, which is a really really cool record. Um, but the bass does the bass feel of all the instruments? I mean, if you had to say like if you had to pick just one, do you think it would be the bass? It would be one of two. It'd either be the bass because it's the thing I played the longest and have the most understanding of as a player and also knowing its role in records. So knowing that, okay, if I'm going to walk in and play bass to your song tomorrow from a kind of Motown soul bass players, rhythm section point of view, this is what I might play. However, from the point of view, like an indie rock player, this is what I might play. Or from the point of view of, an experimental musician that is seeing the bass as kind of like this textural object, this is what I might play. So I feel like the bass is where I have a lot of understanding. Um, but the second instrument I'd want to put in there would probably be the drums. And the reason for that is my relationship to the drums is that I have a good sense of time when that's needed. And then secondly, if I'm hearing a drum part in my head, unless it's super complicated, I can sit down and immediately play it. Yeah. And I feel like that then puts an instrument closer to your abilities. The thing about the bass, guitar, piano, since I'm still further away when it comes to ear training, singing a melody and knowing where it is, those instruments are still farther from me. And I would still have to do a lot of work to hear a line in my head or have someone sing it and then know right away this is where it is on the instrument. Is that something that you're doing usually when you're working like let's say you're working with sam or something like that mm-hmm. you know someone who you've worked a lot with um are you usually imagining the sound and then setting out to do it how often do you start sort of figuring it out in response to even what you're doing you know what i mean like you start you hear a sound and you go okay i think that you know cuz it feels <coughs> to me like there's a you know as a listener and what you've talked about a little bit is that it sounds like listening is very integral to what you're doing because you have to you have to match everybody else. You have to match the other things. But how often are you sort of almost reacting to your own, you know, mm. experiment and then follow that? I mean, does it work both ways? I, I imagine it does. No, you're right. It does work both ways. And because you asked about Sam, in the case of Sam, I'm lucky because this is a singer who's saying, look, my role will be to give my central monolith of feeling so hardcore that you could do anything you want and it will not disturb it. Yeah. So therefore, therefore, my understanding of you, Shazad, is you follow your instincts. And even if they're obtuse, if, they're, if, they're, uh, if they bring horror, if they bring sadness, if they bring lightness, I just trust you to go there and I'm going to stay on the road that I'm on. So with Sam... My, my desire is to sit down at, at the drums or the bass or keyboard or whatever and connect to some kind of immediacy, immediate conduit that I feel something and then it's just coming right away. Like, yeah, sort of like, I guess, like being at a kitchen sink, turning the faucet on, the water is just there. And like that kind of immediacy. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. You, um, I know that, that, a few years ago, I interviewed your bandmate Mark Rabot um, about the Ceramic Dog record. The, uh, is why why are you here? I think yeah. is that yeah. Why are you here? And there's a song on that called Pennsylvania Six 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 Six, six that yeah. Uh, yeah. 
that uh, it's kind of this cool slow burn, and we talked a little bit about the lyrics of that. That was something that uh, was inspired by conversations with you, and I think you wrote some of those lyrics as well, if I remember correctly. I think so, or it was just it was just some sort of communal tumble, like we were in a rehearsal space, and then I w- he was just asking me something, and I said something that ended up in the lyrics also. Well, so, I mean, what ended up, what the song sort of focuses on, on the, is, is this, this idea of you as sort of like a young kid, a Pakistani kid mm. in Pennsylvania, mm. and uh, all of the weirdness and, you know, uh, I don't know how much of it's exaggerated or, because uh, he said that he exaggerates stuff all the time, but, yeah. you know, sort of some of the physical violence even, whatever that was, you know, that there there was some of that growing up for you. Um we, I, 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 now that we're in this position where there's a new president, things have changed a little bit. I think there's like a, a tendency to maybe wonder if that side of things is now gone. We don't have to worry so much about that. I don't think that's a correct assumption. And I, I have to, I'm curious, you know, for you, somebody who has not always had, you know, a political context of your work, but certainly sometimes, you know, how are you feeling right now? Uh, as we think about these elements of our culture that have not gone away, you know, but are still something that music can maybe address or challenge, you know, have you, have you found yourself drawn to sort of political content over, over the recent months? I can say that when we were touring the songs on that record, when Mark Rabot and Chess Smith and I were touring and it was a period of time where we're, Mark's writing was really political. Mm-hmm. I can say that I was so proud to be on stage. I just felt so uh, in the tiniest, tiniest way. I felt what it might have felt like when you were protesting in the 60s or when you were playing a song that was directly speaking about the Vietnam War while it was happening. And yeah. we were like, we're just a, we were just a trio playing in front of 400 people on a, in a small town in Europe on tour. So it's not, it's a small flavor of that, but it's still, I can imagine what kind of pride you would feel that your art has a, an extra layer of importance to it and is relating to something that's happening and that you have the guts to, to, to do that. And for that reason, I always, um, Sometimes I watch YouTube videos because I have a trouble going to sleep one night or I just am like, I just want to shut my brain off in the worst way. And I sometimes enjoy watching YouTube videos that have happened from a long time ago till today of artists that are really high level that go on a TV show like David Letterman and don't end up talking in a flat way about their record coming out but instead talk about something that's heavy that's going on in the world. Yeah. One of, one of my favorites is when Marlon Brando's uh, interviewed by Jack Parr and straight up he's like, you know, you can ask me about film that's basically the same as carpentry, you're just building a house, but what we could talk about is Native American land rights. And in fact, I brought three professors and I was wondering if you don't mind if I just pass the mic to them. And this is the equivalent of, of, of like Jimmy Fallon of yeah. his time. And I just... I admire that so much. I was so happy to see Taylor Swift like be eventually be like, you know what? I don't have to be quiet to make sure I don't alienate some of my fans. Same with um, Jim Gaffigan. 
that the comedian also, yeah. yeah that also made me super happy because he was just like you know I just, I, I can't, now we're at a line where I have to say something and I don't, I don't really care what the repercussions are. And because he was known for being apolitical, not cursing, he could make a, a joke about school lunches so that anybody could be in the audience. Like the most deeply racist white supremacist, like, um, like a Aryan nation person sitting right next to anybody else. So they both be enjoying the comedy show. And he was finally like, I, I just can't, I have to talk now. And it was so beautiful. So, um, I, for me personally, I occasionally think of the political context of what I do in the following way. Now this is maybe, giving too much credit to the under layers of our psychology. But here was my thought. If you come to see a show and the drummer is playing straight time, eighth notes on the hi-hat, like, like a beat. And then at some point, the drummer just goes into a free space of just like a textural drumming. What it's saying to you content wise, but on a structural content, not the front content of the lyrics, but like the back content of the sort of architecture of the moment, it's saying you don't need to continue in the role you're used to continuing in. And it's this possibility, is the thing, yeah. This is the thing is that like people in film school will say that meaning is real in the sense that sometimes I've heard film school theorists criticize films that are trying to be weird they and they they say the following critique they say look if you write weird dialogue and you make weird costumes and, and you have a weird character but then you go with the traditional three-part narrative of hero hero loses everything hero part three hero regains everything then mm -hmm. you're giving a duplicitous sense of of avant-garde versus conservative and you have to pay attention to whether there's a conservative conservative element in the architecture below what you're doing and if you are really trying to push something try to push it in the understructure as well as the superficial content layer and i think in that way because i've done a lot a lot of improvising and i believe in it a lot um i think there's a little bit of a the political possibility of like i guess Anarchy would be the closest, but the political possibility that, look, maybe you don't have to talk, think, and act the way you're used to doing. You could That's try right. a different way. Well, and I mean, I've asked a couple of folks who've been on this show sort of about the the philosophical or even political uh, um, possibilities of, of, of what improvised music allows which is like you said an almost an anarchic an, an anarchic sort of um sense of freedom which is to say there is no prescribed role you know if you're playing drums in an avant-garde trio you don't have to keep the beat necessarily you know that's yeah. what we're used to hearing drums do but maybe you could do whatever else or you could have the bass serve as a purely textural instrument totally. you know totally. and all of that stuff is is like you're saying sort of taking the role and saying nobody has to assign the role to, to you. You can divine whatever that is. And I do think that there are some sort of political possibilities about that. And I think that, you know, that 
ceramic dog record came out at this moment where it just felt so good to have uh some righteous rage you know mm-hmm. and uh i think that maybe there's still a lot of need for that kind of righteous rage and i uh you know i don't know we'll see what happens but i do remember you know in like the let's say the obama era you know some of that righteous rage, it's like I, some people didn't necessarily want that. You know what I mean? We would like to feel something other than rage. And I understand that impulse too. But I don't know. I just, that that's that's such a cool record. And I feel like it has such a, uh, I'm, I, I'm glad to hear that when you were playing it, you, you felt like you were tapped into that revolutionary spirit. But it sounds like you're saying that can exist outside of the, um, you know, lyrical content or outside of the specifics that that's yeah. that revolutionary spirit still can just be informing any kind of music. That's right. And also, um, I don't know, for some reason, what's coming to mind right now is how we choose to live as an individual. And it may be that either through Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, other things, people then like a, a large group of people see how you live in the old days, pre all that stuff maybe your 10 friends were the people that saw how you live. So if you're recycling, they're the ones that know about it. But yeah. when you have a large a large audience and plus social media, you could also impact people by how you're living. So for example, uh, Damien Rice was sort of consciously trying to do a tour by boat where he was just only hitting coastal cities. And that was him trying to think through how do I function as a touring musician with a smaller uh, climate imprint? or climate footprint. And he was sleeping on the boat every night. And I joined him for a few days of that. And it's really beautiful. Yeah, that sounds... Or for example, um, on the third floor of the building where my studio is, is a production space that uh, Gatya has, the artist that did somebody that I used to know, that fellow. And he and I just passed in the hallway the other day. And he said, look, I really think we need to make sure that this building, we start with this building changing its eco footprint and so if you need me to research that or if you need me to put anything towards the cost of that let's do it together so with him it was this idea where he was like look i really need to be walking the walk of whatever whatever i want to whatever change i want to make in the world yeah (coughs) you um you 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 brought up film a little bit and film Mm -hmm. criticism you you've worked uh, a fair amount on on music for film you scored some stuff yourself and you you worked with uh johan uh johansson right the uh the, the guy who did music for sicario and yeah. uh he's, he's done other stuff too you did you guys work together on sicario is that was that the you project know, it was very gentle here's how it went oh, over all these years i've had a strange strangely deep connection with iceland and it went mm-hmm. through different phases it started with liking the landscape and then working on a lot of records there with people and then dating someone who was Icelandic and now marrying her and then getting to amass a large group of friends and a community there. So I knew of Johan in passing before everything got uh, intense with how many scores he was doing. And he was a friend of a friend, wonderful person. And then one day, I think he was physically in LA and called and said, look, I need a lot of drums for this Sicario score and I want to hire you. And this fellow, Danny Frankel, that got recommended to him from someone else. And Danny, I went on to learn, played drums with Katie Lang and lots of other great people, was a big session LA fellow. And so mm-hmm. 
the next thing I knew, Danny and I were just sitting next to each other in a studio in, in L.A., just playing really wild, loud, heavy drums for day, like a couple days in a row. Super fun. Johan's in the control room and giving us instructions and suggestions and that kind of thing. That's as far as it went. Then another time, um, he was doing the score for Mother, I think. And at my studio in New York, we were getting some stems to do overdubs and processing to and sent it back. Also, there was a time when Johan had a studio in Berlin. And I knew Dustin O'Halloran quite well, who also does a lot of scores. And Dustin and Johan and then my partner Giva and other people were sort of like a little crew in Berlin. So I used to hang a bit there. The thing that I really know about Johan is that um, a friend of mine, Randall Dunn, went very heavy working with him on Mandy, I believe. Yeah, great and, great score, great yeah, movie. Yeah, super, super, super awesome. And the stories that Randall told me about working on it were really really great and then it was hard because randall saw a lot of the darkness that was going on yeah and being from seattle randall had an understanding of drug culture when it goes to a really dark place and so out of all the people around johan i think randall really saw it and he was really sad that he couldn't 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 turn it around do you do you like scoring films? And I mean, is is that something? Do do you enjoy the the? Um, I feel like that's of all the the stuff that you've done. I mean, you've done all sorts of stuff. You know, dance dance productions, records, live things. You know, mu- you know, music for for television and film. There's very tight structures around that. You know, it, it has to be has to match very specific things. And I think you have to make a lot of people happy in order for it to work. You know, I'm curious if you find that to be a, an enjoyable process or an enjoyable challenge. It was so hard. And I I wish that I wish that I'd stuck with it at the time when it was opening for me, because certainly now I'd love to be in that field. But I didn't because it didn't suit my temperament at all. And it still doesn't, but especially didn't at that time. Here I was. um, I did a film composer's lab, like residency lab object at the Sundance Institute. And they had six film composers in their little trailers learning how to score. And then they had visiting teachers who were typically people really big time in L.A., like James Newton Howard, people that were scoring things like Lord of the Rings and whatnot. And so... um, I I ended up coming out of that and scoring this film, Frozen River. And it was a beautiful film, great director, and it did really well. But I was coming off of playing gigs every day with somebody. And when you play a gig, all you're meant to do is for one hour to one hour and a half, be in it as hardcore as you can. You get off stage and usually some number of people are come up, coming up to you saying, that was so beautiful. Thank you so much. Then your work is over at 10 o'clock. You're socializing with your friends. You're laughing. You're telling stories. Then you go to a hotel and you're by yourself and you can watch a movie and turn the heat all the way up. And then the next day you're on a plane reading a book. So like it went from that experience to... 30 days in a row, trying to work around 10 hours a day. And everybody you talk to all through the day is saying, it's not quite hitting it. And, or they're saying, this is not working at all. Should we go with someone else? And that's like the whole 30 days. Oh, 
And um, unfortunately, I didn't have the temperament for it. I just was like, I, I just like, this is this is way too emotionally difficult. I couldn't, I didn't hang. And then there, now I have friends who hung in there and are doing like amazing in terms of finances, artwork. However, I realize that I'm not the right judge here, but I wonder sometimes artwork wise, if it's, you're lucky if it's a healthy situation you're in, because what you want is you want a director that believes in you. Therefore you have right. some room to make a great score or what you want is a life where you're scoring, but you're also gigging because I've seen people go deep into that space and then they're kind of just like in this automaton world where they're just working on the next score. And it's great because someone calls them and says, look, I'll pay you 40,000 or a hundred thousand or 1 million or whatever. And it's amazing. But, um, you have to go back to thinking about what makes me happy and what do I want? Like the sum total of my life to be or feel like, or to mean, and to right. also try to remember that somewhere between 50 to 100 years from now, no one will remember anything you've done. And certainly a thousand years from now, few less people, 5,000 years from now, even less people. So that that idea of like meaning and what is life is is worth looking at occasionally. What have you, I mean, that this is a daunting question, but you know, uh, do you feel like in your in your uh, artistic and your your creative life that you've found something like the meaning of life? Mm. Yeah, definitely. And and what I'll say is, there's several times when I'm on stage playing and I have um, a sense of being lost. And for me, that's really viscerally amazing, like yeah. this feeling that you don't you don't know where you're going you're you don't you have this like very slight feeling that you're not the one physically playing the thing you're holding right now but sound is still happening like yeah. this just this feeling of being um one of the water molecules in a crushing wave that's moving forward and you're you're uh, you're definitely not responsible for the wave but you're all, but you are so all, you, you also are responsible for it. It's an interesting, um, double, like, uh, like double perspective. So those moments have happened for me a bunch. Like mm -hmm. I might play a gig and it might happen five times in that one hour. Um, and so that is definitely one place where it's at for me. Yeah. That, that, this, like this idea of, uh, you know, the astronaut Edgar Mitchell, I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but he was no. in orbit, you know, he caught this, he, he, he caught basically a glimpse of the earth in orbit. And he had this moment that he later, you know, uh, said was something like the concept of, you know, samadhi, you know, like a universal right. consciousness where all of a sudden he realized he was a part of everything and everything was a part of him. And it was just this moment that completely changed his life, you know? Wow. And, and to hear you say that maybe, maybe on a smaller scale, maybe not. I mean, you tell me that there's been feelings, almost something like that, where you're part of this thing. I mean, yeah, of course, if you, if you feel that, I have to imagine that just, uh, inst instills in you this drive to at least make sure that, the possibility for that is occurring regularly enough in your life. 
That's really well said. And I feel like um, when I'm looking for a teacher, I'm looking for uh, a person I can interact with that might help direct me to that land, that landing point. And so I often, I often feel like saying that Mark Rabot is a teacher in that way to me and Milford Graves also, because these are two people I played concerts with. And yeah. because from my perspective, they're often in the space I just described what they're doing then by, by their playing and turning and looking at me is they're saying, here's where the door is. Then I get to see the door. I get to walk through the door. And then at the end of our hour, I know a little bit more where to look for the door tomorrow. And that's I, that's the experience I've gotten from working with Mark over these years and playing with Milford also. Uh, I, uh, is, is Mark Rabot a fun dude to hang out with and talk with? Because I got totally. the sense from speaking with him that he was a, a real... Uh, uh, a very generative force uh, in that oh, regard. Man. Absolutely, like all day, straight up. If you and particularly, like you know, when you when you get to play with someone for that long, uh, their life, all of your lives have these phases. Like there might be a phase where, for Mark, maybe parenting is hard, or like, uh, or, or um, sociopolitics because he's very active is hard. And so that might be a tour where he's a little bit quieter or a little bit more reserved. And then, 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 then there be a, might be another tour where the chemistry of his life and your life is lighter, but kind of regardless when Mark and Chester and I are on tour from the moment you wake up and you're in each other's company for an eight hour train ride until you go back to your hotel rooms later at night, it's so fun. It's so um, it's so light and so uh, real and loving and honest and beautiful. And I've always appreciated the bands that I play with, where the travel is also just as fun as playing the gig with them. You uh, have spent a lot of your life traveling. You know, you've studied music in Pakistan, India, Turkey, Mexico, Japan. I mean, all over the place. You know, Iceland, which you've brought up a couple times. Uh, do, do I mean have has it been painful not being able to to travel uh, uh due to the pandemic? I'd say it's uh it's been both because I if if there's any credit that we want to give to astrology and you know we probably have at least some fruit nut listeners who are like my wife and I'm starting to become that as well. The yeah, gem- me too. Yeah, that's great. It sometimes it takes your partner, and then all of a sudden you're like, and then the tarot card said, and so um, I'm on so, board. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. I'm so in it right now, due to Gita, especially starting it. But um, if if that stuff is worth looking into, then the Gemini space is about like a big, like um, uh, electric power plant kind of throw switch that gets clicked on one side or the other one. And Mm -hmm. so this COVID situation threw the switch so hard towards being alone at home in your apartment, not quite alone because my mom's here, my daughter's here often and, and Gita, my partner's here, but, but basically never leaving, never seeing anybody groceries are delivered in a box downstairs. And I'm now so in it and so used to it that I just straight up like it. Like I would rather quarantine than get the vaccine. (laughs) <laughs> because I'm because I'm a yeah. tiny bit worried about it. So, um, so it didn't take long. And once that switch was thrown, I didn't miss it. But I can definitely say that when I'm on the other side of it, 
I love the fact that every, I love looking at an itinerary that I got as a PDF coming up soon, where every day I'm in a different country. It just, um, I love that kind of traveling and I would happily like tour and be away from home every single day. Yeah. I, I, I guess the door has opened just a, a, I see a crack in the door as you were sort or <laughs> the door cracked a little bit towards the sort of paranormal or mystical. I, I, I was looking for interviews with you to prepare for this one and there are some out there. There's one on YouTube where you discuss uh, uh, being in Iceland, speaking with someone who told you that you had a, a brother. You know, yeah. you, your your brother died when you were very young, right? How old yeah, were you I when, was, when that happened? I was around two years old, and he lived something like five or seven days. Hmm. Hmm. He... This person, uh, and I, 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 you, you can tell the story better than me. But they basically said that that you were, you were meant to be a musician, or, or you were a musician because he was meant to be a musician. Is that totally? Is that, correct? that was it. Like basically, this was the beginning of Gita and I being together. And I love how much, how much of the esoteric world she's brought into my landscape, whether it's tarot or astrology or or mediums or all kinds of stuff. So, in this case, Iceland has, I feel like, a pretty solid tradition of people speaking to the other side. Like it's a part of the fabric of their their society and their awareness. And so Gita set up this appointment with this older woman. She's sitting across from the table. And I didn't say much because I was excited to see with no prompting, what would she say? What would she discover? And so she did say, unprompted, you had a brother. He was the musician you're the priest when he died he inhabited you and that's that's what pulled you towards music so heavily and what was so uh moving about that in terms of the sense making of it it was around that age around two two and a half where i really wanted to be a musician Hmm. super hardcore yeah when she told you that how did you feel how did you feel hearing that i mean i felt amazing because both words are just signifiers of such beautiful spaces. Like when I think of the word priest, I'm, I'm a, I have not grown up like a lot of friends in like a Catholic or uh, or Western Christian space where priest means something really dark, whether it's sexual abuser or um, authoritarian or just heavy stuff. I am now hearing the word priest and thinking, here's someone that with love shepherds you to to an awareness of other things yeah and that's kind of it like even like a in that sense a priest could be someone that cooks really well and makes the kind of meal for you where you're like i didn't realize that i could spend time making food like open up in a way and then the flavor was was different i'm just not used to that idea so priest i when i think of that word it's more like a shepherd that that says let's go over here and i want you to see something that once you see it you'll maybe want you'll you'll maybe aim your life differently and and receive more because of it so when she said that i was just so touched and so happy and i suppose what i thought was i should take myself more seriously that as like like that like that uh that astronaut said as one part of a whole if I do the best I can and if I am really giving to people, 
then the whole, the whole back to looking at the whole, it can move slightly to a better place. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's, that's, I left that, that moment just feeling like, oh, I have potential to give good things to the world. And therefore I should try to take that seriously a little bit. Sure, sure. So when you're working with an artist, you know, that's like, as I have already ran down some of the people you've worked with, you know, I have to imagine that someone like Lou Reed is not the, um, he's got a very specific thing that he was going for, you know, or if you're working with, you know, I mean, anybody, if you're working with, with Will Oldham, you know, these are people who have very, you've worked with all kinds of people and in all kinds of settings. Mm. So I wonder if, if you're pressed and somebody says, how do you be a good collaborator? Mm. How, what makes a good collaborator? Mm. Um, for you, is it sort of a combination of that, that priest and artist thing where you're sort of like willing to guide, willing to be guided, you know, how, how how does it work for you? That's really well said. I think, I think just landing on willing to guide, willing to be guided is so beautiful and also, um, as a collaborator, I've I've been in different spots in the hierarchy. I might be like producing engineering, or I might be playing bass, and they have different weights to your presence in the room. Um, I suppose that if I'm producing or engineering with someone, I really have loved this word doula a lot, which came into my vocabulary recently because there was a doula present when my daughter was born. And so Mm -hmm. it's basically someone that is not planning on giving you a shot and dealing with the medical side of things. All they're doing is they're, they're holding their arms open to, to make it more comfortable for you to exist in the room and do the thing that you have to do. And so that's the space I tend to occupy almost whether I'm a bass player or whether I'm, I'm producing or engineering this feeling that the notes I might play on the bass make it more possible that the words that the person were, was trying to land have a, have a, have an area to, to come down into. Or similarly, if I'm producing or engineering, I'm trying to make the room feel comfortable in such a way that that the human that wants to make the art comes out more that almost like if you could close your eyes and imagine in time-lapse quickness like a bunch a bunch of mushrooms just slowly growing off the off the wall into a space who are some some people who have made you feel that kind of uh openness and comfort Mm. that you've played with that's a really nice question because I so I so often think about these things unidirectionally, like what can I give to the room at this moment? But I can say that Sam absolutely is one of the people that makes me feel like that and personally as well. And that's actually even more rare. I don't know what your life landscape is like, but sometimes it's hard to find that friendship where you feel like you're on the edge of being able to laugh fairly often. And also you could say whatever you want because right. now where we're going to with being with being careful about hurting each other's feelings, which is fine, it just makes us all a bit more guarded. And we probably have some friendships where you really know, okay, I could say anything I want to right now and I can trust that, I, that I'll be received all right and that it will be fun to be in, yeah. in company of each other. I'm sorry, just one second. I'm, I was just going to chill the dishes in the background for a second. So um, <laughs> no worries. What, I, what I wanted to say about Sam is that 
Sam is we Sam and I have intentionally set up this position with each other where he could pick up the phone or I could pick up the phone and we could say whatever we want to each other and we could hang up if we want to just hang up the call. So for example, because it's a luxury, sometimes Sam will call me, he'll start talking and I will straight up say, Sam, I can't believe how boring this is right now. And then I'll just hang up. And <laughs> I can't do that with almost anybody. So I like to take that space because the moment I'm done hanging up, what it did is it made me feel so much like Shazad is allowed to be in the room right now. How yeah. he feels, what he thinks is he could totally be here in the room right now. Well, yeah, I think about all of the uh, the greatest you know, friendships and, and the greatest relationships I've had and how often those are the relationships where neither of us can, has to say anything for an extended period of time. You know, that's a, yeah. that's such a vulnerable space in a weird way. You don't feel the, the need to fill up the room with, with chatter, you know, that's a real, real special space. Well, I don't, I don't want to take up too much more of your Sunday. God, it's been such a real pl uh, pleasure speaking with you. But before we go, I do want to ask, you alluded to it earlier, you studied biochemistry at, at ASU. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to ask you uh, your impressions of, of the Sonoran Desert, you know, I mean, oh, it man, it's the best. It's yeah, the best. A, like I was, it's funny. Just before, I, as I was thinking, you might be ending soon. I was going to give some shout outs to, to the landscape and the place because it was a big deal to me. I moved to Tempe just after college, so like 1993 or 92, and I was around 22 or so, and then I stayed there until 1998 or so, when I was around 28 or 29. And yeah. there's many things that were super important about living there for me. Stinkweeds Records, Kimber Lanning, Modified Arts. I mean, Tempe was where I ended up luckily falling into improvising and the improvised music scene. And it was at one of the first Modified Arts, I think. It was like a like this weird triangular-shaped stage in Phoenix somewhere. And I don't know where. It must have moved several times since then. But um Modified arts and those early gigs were how I found improvising, which then became such a big part of my life in New York. Oddly enough, um, playing a klezmer gig with my friend Corey Fogel uh, at mm -hmm. the Java Road Cafe near Mill uh, was yeah. how I got into like klezmer. And then one of my first gigs in New York was playing bass for David Krakauer who was a clarinetist in the Klezmatics, which I wouldn't have known anything about that music if it wasn't for Corey and Java Road and four people drinking coffee outside. Yeah, um, Tempe, Arizona, known a known hotspot of, of Klezmer music. To totally hilarious. And then Stinkweeds was at a time when people still walked into a record store and asked the person behind the counter, what should I buy? This is what I bought a few months ago. What would you suggest? And so therefore... Kimber and Stinkweeds is directly responsible for me knowing about Low, Mazzy Star, the first Mark Rabot record of uh, Cubanos Postizos. I bought it there, and it still shocks me to this day that years later, that's someone that is uh, that I play with and who, with whom I have a really important relationship. So Arizona was a big deal. Also, Arizona taught me about the outdoors because I grew up in Pennsylvania. And I grew up with really serious dust and pollen allergies. 
So the fucking forest landscape of Pennsylvania and the temperature meant that I was mostly an indoor kid with the sure. windows closed, carpets, and that was it. Then I get to Arizona and being someone that's slight of frame and easily cold, finally, and I'm in the desert landscape where there's not much pollinating anything. Finally, I live a life where I open the door and I walk straight to my porch and put a chair down and I'm mostly outside. And I yeah. loved it so much. It was so, it was so healthy to become uh, connected to the to nature more in that way. Yeah, I mean, you got to put up with some heat, but man, we've got yeah. good landscapes out here. That's oh, for sure. Oh, for sure, it's so beautiful. Well, Shazad, again, it's been such a pleasure, and I get the sense uh, that I could talk to you for another couple hours, and uh, it would I feel continue. The same. It would continue to be enlightening. So, so let's let's make it a plan to catch up again at some point on the show because it'd I be would great be happy to. to. Let's do part two, please. I'd really love that. We'll do that. But for now, we'll call it. And thank you so much for your time. It's a real uh, a real pleasure to speak with you. Same. Take good care of yourself. That's going to do it for us this week on the show. I'm Jason Woodbury. I write, produce, and host the program. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton. Sarah Goldstein does graphic design, and Jonathan Mark Walls creates visual assets. Our executive producer is Aquarium Drunker founder Justin Gage. On the recommendation front, before I get out of here, well, uh, I'm going to recommend that you tune in on Sunday. Uh, afternoon slash evening for Radio Free Aquarium Drunkard on Dublab, which will run from 4 to 8 p.m. Pacific. I'm hosting my show, Range and Basin, there alongside Tyler Wilcox's Doom and Gloom from the Tomb. We'll be joined by some great guests. You can find more information on Aquarium Drunkard and Dublab. On the non-Aquarium Drunkard front, I'll recommend the new Adam Curtis BBC docuseries, Can't Get You Out of My Head. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating use of archival footage and music and obscured history. I don't think there's any legitimate way to watch it here in the U.S., um, but it's not hard to find. Uh, just search that out and you'll, uh, you'll be able to turn it up. All right, I'll be back next week with another strange conversation for these strange times. We'll be joined by Martin Courtney of Real Estate. So take care of yourself. Until then, we'll speak soon. <laughs>